I need to send some belated thank yous to those who have donated to the Crime Lines Coffee Fund. You have kept me well-caffeinated above and beyond, and I really appreciate the support. In the future, I'll be more on top of this, so hopefully you won't have to wait so long for your thank you. And also, apologies if I mispronounce your name. It is me we're talking about here. So I want to say thank you to Sophia, Elizabeth, Michelle, Farrar, Jana, Karen, Marvy, Kelly, Carly, Christine, Esther, Sarah, Paris, Claudia, Allison, Abigail, and Tiffany. Thank you so much. In November of 2000, researcher Eric Miller became mysteriously ill after a night out with friends. Within two weeks, he was dying. Had he somehow been contaminated with a virus or a poison at the lab he worked at? Or did someone want Eric dead? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Hello and welcome to Crime Lines. Not to continue to annoy you with the promotion. Remember, Crime Lines is on YouTube. The link is always in the show's description, and a lot of you have already supported me over there. Thank you. This is about the three-month mark of making video content, and I have around 3,300 subs already, which seems pretty good for just getting started. I do cover different cases on YouTube than I cover here, so it's extra content. And I also do live streams with other podcasters on occasion, and I just did one with Nina from Already Gone, so I recommend you go check that out. Okay, so on to this week's podcast, which is really what you're here for. This case was suggested by Pat, so thank you so much for sending it in. It had a really interesting legal situation come up, So for me, who is a bit of a law nerd, it was really interesting to dig into. We are going to start with Eric and Ann Miller. Ann grew up in New York, and Eric grew up in rural Indiana, and they met when they were going to college together at Purdue University. They were both science majors, and they got married in 1992 and moved to North Carolina to do their graduate work at North Carolina State University. They eventually settled in Raleigh, North Carolina, with over 100 labs in the city. Where else would two scientists go? Eric had a postdoc fellowship at UNC Chapel Hill, where he was a pediatric AIDS researcher. He had actually passed on a high-paid position with a pharmaceutical company because he could see that he could do more good, even if it was at less pay, working in pediatric AIDS research. This decision meant money was tight for them since Anne was still trying to finish up her PhD. Around the time they got pregnant with their daughter, Anne decided to leave the doctoral program she was in and go into the workforce. With a master's in biochemistry, she really had no problem finding work. Anne found a well-paying job working for GlaxoSmithKline, which is a pharmaceutical company. They make any number of well-known products like Advil, Zantac, Tums, Flonase. You probably have some of their products in your bathroom right now. The increased income allowed them to buy a nice house and also gave them some 
breathing room financially. Things seemed to be going well for the little family until November 15, 2000, when 30-year-old Eric went bowling with three other guys on a guy's night out. Within an hour, Eric started feeling ill. He was so sick to his stomach and started feeling very weak as well. He went home and Anne took him to the hospital immediately. He just couldn't keep anything down. Eric was sick enough that they admitted him into the hospital so they could run some tests. They ran tons of tests and couldn't figure out what was wrong. It took over a week for Eric to be well enough to go home on November 24th. Because he was recovering, they assumed this must have been some virus. Though Eric was well enough to go home, that doesn't mean he was better, that he really felt that great. He was still weak, and he was using a cane to walk at times. His parents had traveled to North Carolina while he was in the hospital to both support him, but also to help out with their granddaughter. So the family did have extra help at the house during this time. And on November 30th, Eric's parents decided they should go out and let Eric and Anne have a minute together alone. They hadn't had that for at least two weeks since Eric had first gotten sick. Some friends had brought over food for dinner, so Anne was just going to heat that up so they could have a relaxing night without doctors, nurses, or family around. Within hours of Eric's parents leaving, he became very ill again with the same symptoms as before, but worse. Back in the hospital, more tests were run, and the next day they found out that Eric had high levels of arsenic in his system, and it seems like it had actually been detected when he was admitted to the hospital the first time, but there was some sort of mix-up with the lab or communication so his doctor and Eric had never been told about the arsenic. And now here it is showing up again. Of course, police are called in to investigate the poisoning. That is just standard procedure. The investigators were able to speak with Eric in his hospital room very briefly. He was very weak. He was out of it. And he could pretty much just tell them, he didn't know how he came in contact with arsenic, and he didn't know who would have purposely poisoned him. But that's about all they could get out of him. In the very early morning hours of December 2nd, 2000, Eric Miller died at the age of 30. That day, the police went to his home to look for the source of the arsenic. Every fluid in the house was taken in and tested, Shampoos, hand soaps, mouthwash, all of it, and all the food as well. Testing all of these products, they couldn't find any signs of arsenic. Being that he worked in a lab, it seemed possible that Eric may have accidentally come in contact with the arsenic, possibly ingested it. Except the police learned that Eric's lab didn't use arsenic, and hadn't in the entire time he had worked there. Plus, Eric hadn't gone to work after being released from the hospital the first time and his death, he was still too sick. So he wouldn't have been exposed to the fatal dose, even if he did have arsenic in his lab, because he didn't go to the lab. Accidental ingestion anywhere seemed unlikely, 
after they found out just how much arsenic was in Eric's system. He had been given two, possibly three, large doses in the weeks leading up to his death, far more than someone would accidentally ingest. The police had a few people in mind who had all the right elements for having done this. They had access to arsenic, access to Eric, and the police just had to try to find the motive. They did consider maybe they were looking at a competing scientist. It sounds like the plot of a Dan Brown book. I mean, you do have to throw in a religious organization in there as well, but it pretty much writes itself. But it's true, Eric did work in a competitive field, and he had a position that was coveted. The investigators asked Anne about it, and she said she didn't know anyone Eric had an issue with, and the police found no signs of threats or anything like that on Eric's computers or in his email, and no one at work had heard about it either. After Anne spoke with the police after Eric's death, she called a friend of hers. She told him that she was afraid the police might suspect her because she was the wife and she had arsenic in her lab. And the police did learn this when they searched her lab and found an arsenic compound. But Anne wasn't with Eric when he got sick the first time. He likely ingested the poison 30 to 60 minutes prior to getting sick, and he was at the bowling alley with some friends at that time. Obviously, the investigators wanted to talk to those men and find out what Eric had possibly ingested at the bowling alley. One of them mentioned that they did share a pitcher of beer, but Eric made a comment about his beer tasting funny. No one else thought that it tasted weird, but Eric did. They also remembered that Eric's beer had accidentally spilled, so he only drank about half of it. So had the poison been in Eric's beer? Had it been put in his cup and his alone? And that seemed possible because the investigators learned that the man who poured Eric's glass of beer, Eric didn't pour it himself. A man named Daryl Willard did. Daryl worked for the same company as Anne, and the two were friends. And asking around made the police think they were maybe more than friends. Some coworkers said that Daryl seemed infatuated with Anne. The lead detective wanted to ask Anne a little bit more about this, about Daryl Willard in particular. But within a week of Eric's death, Anne stopped cooperating with the authorities. She even hired two high-profile defense attorneys. Now, this lead investigator, he's giving this a massive side-eye, but Eric's family absolutely did not. They saw Anne at the funeral. They saw her grief, and they knew that spouses were often looked at for crimes like this. So hiring an attorney to guide her through it made sense. Anne's in-laws were on her side. When Anne asked if she could come to Indiana to spend Christmas in Eric's childhood home, they welcomed her. Over Christmas, the family was together and the investigators were digging through Eric's past and present for any clue of a motive or any enemies. And they were still trying to talk to Daryl Willard. Unlike the other people who were at the bowling alley the night Eric got sick, Daryl was a little hard to get in touch with. He wouldn't return calls. He wouldn't agree to sit down with authorities he seemed reluctant to cooperate. 
But seeing as he poured Eric's beer and coworkers said he was infatuated with Eric's wife, they were going to investigate him with or without his help. They pulled his phone records and found that there were a ton of calls between Daryl and Anne. And it wasn't just Daryl calling Anne, but rather Anne calling him as well, showing that this infatuation coworkers mentioned wasn't a one-way street. In a few months' time, Anne and Daryl had called each other over 100 times, with the calls coming more frequently immediately before and after the two times Eric got sick. Less than two hours after Eric died, Anne called Daryl and they talked for 24 minutes. The investigators also found out that on November 10th, Ann Miller went on what she told her family was a business trip to Chicago. And Daryl Willard also went to Chicago, telling his wife he needed some space. They ended up spending the weekend together at the Ritz-Carlton. There were also emails between Daryl and Anne that showed their relationship was very obviously romantic. Emails also showed that Daryl wasn't the only other man in Anne's life. She had another romantic relationship brewing, but that guy lived clear across the country and was never considered a suspect because he just wasn't in North Carolina. Daryl's wife, Yvette, suspected Daryl was having an affair, but she didn't know for sure back when he went to Chicago that that's what was going on. It was a suspicion, but she hadn't confronted him about it. It appears, however, that Eric did not know Anne was having an affair. There is some indication he may have been a little uncomfortable or uneasy with Anne working long hours in a lab full of men because she did encourage him to get to know her coworkers. That was possibly to make him more comfortable. Even that guy's night out bowling was with Anne's co-workers. But even if Eric had these little jealous moments, if he had them, we don't know for sure, but if he did, it wasn't the same as suspecting Anne was cheating. What learning about this affair gave the police was the motive. To the investigators, it looks like Daryl and Anne might even be in this together. What are the odds that Eric would get sick after drinking a weird-tasting beer that Daryl gave him and then get sick again after a meal Anne prepared for him? The investigators decided to confront Anne and Daryl about this on the same day in mid-January 2001. Eric's family just happened to be visiting Anne for the baby's first birthday. When the police came to the door and asked Anne if she was having an affair with Daryl, she ran up the stairs and hid, literally hid. Eric's family was shocked at the accusation, and they were very hurt on Eric's behalf as well as their own. But Anne assured them that it wasn't what it seemed. Daryl had been obsessed with her, practically stalking her. It wasn't an affair, and the police somehow had it all mixed up. And I'm not sure that they believed her. Meanwhile, the police also went to Daryl Willard's house. They had a search warrant in hand. According to one detective, he said something to Daryl about 
It looks like a woman had used him. Daryl said yes, but that he wasn't going to say any more, he wanted to call his attorney, Rick Gammon. Daryl had already spoken to Rick a few days before this, and they made an appointment to meet the next day. Daryl was not going to talk to the detectives until he spoke with Rick in person again. Daryl did, however, talk with his wife, Yvette. After Eric's death, he did confess that he was having an affair with Anne, which, like I said, she already suspected there was an affair going on, and she even had wondered if it was with Anne because she noticed Daryl talked about Anne differently than he talked about his other co-workers. And around the time he started talking about Anne, he also started taking more care over his appearance. And Daryl and Yvette started arguing more, so Yvette was seeing the red flags. It seems like their marriage was in a holding pattern, an uncertain future at this point. And now the police had been in their home and taken documents and computers from them. But Yvette has never, for a minute, believed Daryl had anything to do with what happened to Eric. And she has not been shy over the years in proclaiming his innocence. And that is remarkable, if you ask me, because if my husband cheats on me, I'm calling the FBI, I'm turning him in as the Zodiac Killer. So what if he wasn't even born yet? That's between him and the FBI. But seriously, I don't want to paint Yvette as standing by her man as though she was in denial about it. She acknowledges that things look suspicious. She acknowledges that he lied and deceived her, but she just does not believe Daryl would have been capable of hurting someone else. She genuinely believed in his innocence. And she tried to assure him of that. The day after the police were at their house, Yvette talked to Daryl a little bit in the morning before she went to work. Daryl had that appointment with his lawyer later in the day, and they were just both stressed that morning, as you can imagine. But she had no idea how hopeless Daryl felt. When Yvette came home, she walked into the garage and found Daryl's body. She called 911 to tell them that her husband had taken his own life. Daryl did leave a handwritten note. The only part of the note that is relevant here is that Daryl denied having anything to do with Eric's death. And like I said, Yvette believed him, but the investigators still stuck with their theory that this was a conspiracy between Anne and Daryl, and they were working out how to prove it. Within a few months of Eric and Daryl's deaths, Anne moved herself and her daughter 120 miles away to Wilmington, North Carolina, for a fresh start. And this was pretty surprising to Eric's family, who were more and more questioning Anne's story. They heard about the phone calls and the emails between Anne and Daryl, and one of Eric's sisters even confronted Anne over the phone about it. She was clearly exasperated as she asked Anne about the story that Daryl was stalking her. And Anne responded that he was definitely obsessed. When confronted with the calls she made to Daryl herself and the evidence that this was a consensual affair, Anne basically pulled a, what do you want me to say? But that wasn't the only thing weighing on Eric's family. Anne had also insisted that Eric be cremated. And his family didn't want that, but they didn't really get a say because Anne was his wife. Anne insisted he be cremated and his ashes interred near her and their daughter so they could visit whenever they wanted. 
It made sense until Anne moved two hours away within months without any signs she was looking back. Rather than be able to visit Eric's grave whenever she could, she left his ashes behind. The red flags were waving, but none of it compared to the bombshell of Eric Miller's autopsy report. In May 2001, the family learned that, yes, Eric was killed by arsenic poisoning. The specific compound was the same one the investigators found in Anne's lab at work. And hair tests showed that Eric had been first dosed with arsenic a full four months before his death, before Anne's affair with Daryl. This wasn't a sudden thing that happened in November. The amount he was dosed with at the time wasn't enough to send him to the hospital, and investigators theorized that this was a trial run. The person poisoning Eric was trying to figure out how much to use. Even more damning, if you can imagine it, was that Eric had been dosed at least twice, likely three times, in November leading up to his death in early December. The fatal dose, however, wasn't at the bowling alley and it wasn't at home. The timeline of the fatal dose being administered was while Eric was at the hospital the second time. As Eric laid there suffering, someone gave him more arsenic. And Daryl was not at the hospital. Only Eric's family, including Anne, was there. This removed any lingering support the family had for Anne. The theory she spun that an obsessed coworker maybe did this alone completely fell apart. The police at this point were ready to move, but the DA said no. There just wasn't enough here. It was all too circumstantial. So this led the lead detective to go back over the entire case file to see what avenue may have been missed. He read the transcripts of every interview, and he came across the one of Daryl's widow, Yvette. She told the police that Daryl was told by his attorney, Rick Gammon, that he could possibly be facing attempted murder charges. That led to only one question. What did Daryl say to Rick for this to be the answer given? So the detective called Rick up and asked him about it, and Rick said, I'm not going to tell you that. And this is where attorney-client privilege comes into play. Any lawyers listening, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this case and what came next, and honestly, even non-lawyers, since we may be in the other seat one day, confiding in our attorney and then having them being asked to divulge that information later. Attorney-client privilege is an important part of our justice system. A client has to trust that they can speak relatively openly with their attorney to get legal advice and not worry that it'll come back to bite them later. There are exceptions to this. Don't tell your attorney that you plan to cover up your crime or that you plan to commit more crimes. Don't explain your Bernie Madoff-style scam to your lawyer. Keep that to yourself. That is not protected. But otherwise, most of what you say will be. 
And the privilege belongs to the client, not the attorney. So the attorney cannot waive it. The client can. And attorney-client privilege outlives the client. Daryl dying did not then give Rick Gammon permission to divulge anything. I guarantee Rick Gammon consulted with some ethics experts on this before he really dug his heels in. And he dug his heels in. He wouldn't talk because, frankly, he didn't believe he could. Yvette was the executor of Daryl's estate. She was willing to waive the privilege, but because there was nothing in Daryl's will giving her the right to do that, it didn't really come into play. Attorney-client privilege isn't something you inherit like an asset. So Rick wouldn't talk, and the DA decided to go to court to compel him to do so. Initially, I thought they were going to argue a third-party exemption thing. One of the ways you can waive your attorney-client privilege is to have the conversation in front of another person or repeat the conversation to someone else. Daryl apparently repeated at least some of the information to his wife. But that really just means Yvette was allowed to repeat what she heard. It doesn't necessarily mean the attorney also has to repeat it. And Daryl didn't tell Yvette any of the details the state was hoping to learn anyway. What they wanted to know were the things that he hadn't told her. What the state was actually arguing here wasn't this third-party exemption. They were saying that the information they wanted wasn't against Daryl Willard. He was already dead, and he could not be tried for any crimes he may have confessed to. What they wanted to know was if a third party was involved. They told the judge that there was reason to believe there was a connection due to the romantic relationship between Daryl and Anne and the circumstances of when Eric got sick. So they were pretty clear that this wasn't a fishing expedition they were on. They had good reason to believe Rick Gammon had information they needed. They also took their argument but flipped it around and said, what if Daryl told his lawyer that he did it alone? No one else was involved. But then the state put someone else on trial. Is the information worth protecting if it would lead to a miscarriage of justice? If the information couldn't hurt Daryl, but withholding it could hurt Anne, Shouldn't Rick Gammon reveal it in the interest of justice? It was an interesting argument, and of course the state didn't think the information would clear Anne, and that is why they wanted it so badly. In March 2003, the prosecution won in that the judge ordered Rick Gammon to reveal some of what Daryl Willard had told him. Rick appealed this decision, and then in August, the state Supreme Court ruled that Rick had to tell the judge what Daryl told him, not the DA. The judge was then to decide if the information was going to be turned over in whole or in part or remain entirely confidential. Rick Gammon did comply with the court's ruling and submitted a seven-page affidavit for the judge to review, and the judge ruled that the state would get the information. So Rick appealed again, and at this point, we are in October 2003, nearly three years after Eric was murdered, and the only people in court over this were a whole bunch of lawyers. But it shows how serious the attorney-client relationship is and how far attorneys will go to defend it. 
In May of 2004, the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled again that Rick Gammon had to turn over the information. In part, it was because the information Daryl gave did not implicate himself in Eric's death. He only implicated a third party, and he didn't say he had knowledge ahead of time or engaged in any conspiracy. The information did not put Daryl's reputation, estate, or family in any legal jeopardy. So what did Rick say Daryl told him? He said, Daryl met Anne in a parking lot and she was crying. She told him that she injected arsenic into Eric's IV when she was alone in the hospital room with him. He asked her why she did this and she said she didn't know. Rick asked Daryl why he thought Anne did this and Daryl said maybe she wanted to end Eric's suffering. Daryl had denied any role in Eric's murder. Something that is important for the timeline here is that Daryl would have told Rick this four or five months before the autopsy results were back. At the time Daryl said this, no one knew a dose had been given at the hospital. And when the autopsy came back, no one knew Daryl had said a dose was given at the hospital except for Rick Gammon. And we know he wasn't talking. So we have two independent people, one relaying a conversation and one looking at the science, and they're both saying that Eric was dosed in the hospital. And the list of people with access to arsenic and Eric's hospital room had one name on it, Ann Miller. In September 2004, Ann Miller then Ann Kantz, because she had been remarried, was indicted for first-degree murder. Her attorney said they would do whatever they needed in order to prove her innocence. Three months later, at a bond hearing, Rick Gammon's affidavit was read. This is when that information was made public to everyone. The judge then gave Ann a $3 million bond. But there was a giant question mark about whether Rick Gammon's affidavit about what Daryl Willard told him would be admissible at trial. The DA said he thought it would be allowed in, and the defense said no. They said the contents were a lie to start with, not that Rick lied, but rather Daryl lied to him to save his own skin. And then they couldn't confront Daryl as an accuser because he was dead. Anne's attorney said it was quite obvious that Anne was not guilty. But it turns out both sides were overstating their case just a bit for the media. The state wasn't quite so sure the statement would fly, and it was one of the strongest pieces of evidence they had. Maybe not entirely on its own, but in conjunction with the rest of the circumstantial case. And even if they managed to get it admitted at trial, it would be handing Anne something to appeal over, and that could go either way. So they decided to offer a plea deal. And the defense, though saying it was obvious Anne was not guilty, took the deal, largely because Anne was, in fact, guilty. In November 2005, nearly five years after Eric Miller's death, His wife, Ann Miller, pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Her attorney read her statement, in which she expressed some remorse for her actions. She admitted that for two weeks in November 2000, 
she conspired with Daryl Willard to kill Eric. Never mind that hair test that showed Eric was exposed four months before that, she's only fessing up to the two weeks Eric was sick enough to be hospitalized. As for the why of what she did, Anne's statement said she didn't know. She wrote, For reasons I do not now understand, I permitted myself to knowingly participate with Daryl Willard in events which cost my husband his life. Anne said she asked God's forgiveness and that she hoped God would help the others she hurt to forgive her. Her attorney painted this as her taking responsibility for what she did, but Eric's father said her statement was just empty words, in part because she didn't give a why. Why not divorce Eric? Why not just keep the affair going under the radar? Why did Anne think the only way forward was with Eric dead? Anne wasn't going to give them the why, and without it, her apologies meant very little to Eric's family. And another reason the family didn't buy it was that it didn't come from her mouth. She had her attorney read the statement. She spared herself that particular consequence of facing the family. And that, to Eric's family, undermined this narrative that she was taking responsibility for anything. Eric's family gave heart-wrenching impact statements and spoke to Anne directly during them. One of his sisters asked Anne to look at her while she spoke, but Anne wouldn't. She kept her head down. Anne, then 35 years old, was sentenced to 25 to 30 years in prison. Eric Miller's family was fine with this plea deal, even though Anne could have gotten a life sentence if they had gone to trial. They had been worried about Eric's daughter's safety because they suspected Anne killed Eric, and when Anne had no explanation for it, they were even more worried. What happened if Anne got out and had access to this little girl? By Anne pleading guilty, there was no chance she would be acquitted or freed on appeal later on and given access to the little girl while she was still a minor. And protecting her left Eric's family satisfied with Anne's plea deal. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 